protests and demonstrations have filled many Canadian cities since Israel launched its offensive in Gaza after the October 7th attack by Hamas. Many have been peaceful, calling attention to the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. But this past week has seen a sharp escalation in anti-Semitic attacks that has alarmed officials. A Montreal synagogue has been firebombed. A hate preacher has called for the extermination of Jews. Jewish students have been called the K-word. Terrorists fired bullets at two different schools. There is no room and there is no place for anti-Semitism in Canada. There is no room, there is no place for hate. There is no room and there is no place for violence. But what specifically is the government doing to address the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia? I'm joined now by government house leader Karina Gould. Minister, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, I'm glad to be here with you. I'd like to start today not speaking to you as, as a politician or as a cabinet minister, but, but speaking to you as a Jewish woman. You've been open about your faith, the mother of a young child, an expectant mother of another child to come into the world who is watching this alarming and growing anti-Semitism in Canada. How is this affecting you? Oh, you know, Mercedes, I think the the very first thing that I feel is just incredible sadness. Um, you know, speaking with um, friends and uh, colleagues and, and folks around the country, um, I think a lot of uh, people, and particularly uh, Jewish people right now, are 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 feeling very worried um, here in Canada. I think there's a there's a recognition, there's a lot of hurt, and there's a lot of pain um, coming out of what's happening in the Middle East. Obviously, uh, both you know whether you're Jewish or Muslim, Israeli or Palestinian, um, there's there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. But um, the the deep sadness that I have right now is um, what's been happening, uh, you know, particularly what we saw in Montreal last week uh, with the uh, Molotov cocktail at a, at a synagogue at a Jewish community center, the um, gunshots that were fired at two Jewish schools. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of sadness um, and fear out there because, um, you know, here in Canada, even though we have differences and people come from all different parts of the world, uh, ultimately everyone should feel safe to be who they are, to practice their faith, um, despite what's happening in other parts of the world and, and the, the very real feelings and legitimate feelings that people have in that regard. Do you feel there's been a shift in, in anti-Semitism in Canada? When I speak to some members of the community, they tell me not only have they never felt anything like this, they'd only been told about it by their grandparents, who in some cases were Holocaust survivors, that they never thought they would see or experience something like this in their life. There, there's always Islamophobia, there is always anti-Semitism, but they feel like the environment is, is changing and like there is potentially a threat to the community in a way there hasn't been previously. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I, I the the very real incidents that have happened over the past week, um, where uh, you know that has crossed over into um, you know, fortunately, no one has been hurt, but um, has into into very real violent threats. Um, I think you know, we always talk about it and and know that it's there and present, but. Um, 
you know, this is a, a very scary time for a lot of people. I think the community is resilient um, in many ways, but uh, certainly people are are on high alert. Um, you know, I've spoken to a number of people who are, you know, just worried to um, be themselves because they feel targeted um, as uh, Jews in Canada. Um, and that's something that I, I think is is just is just devastating and uh, as i said nobody in this country should ever feel no matter their faith no matter their background no matter their race no matter their gender um should ever feel like they can't be who they are um in safety and in security in canada and certainly we've seen um a huge rise in um anti-semitism we've seen a huge rise in islamophobia um in as well and both of those things are in many ways two sides of the same coin and um you know, it's it's hard right now, you know, people are hurting a lot, but I think it's also incumbent upon folks to not look at their neighbor um, and see anything but a Canadian right now. Um, that doesn't mean that they, you know, sh shouldn't be protesting or expressing themselves, um, but to make sure that, you know, when we when we look at who we are as Canadians, we see Canadians first. And I know that, you know, this is obviously a very emotional time for a lot of people. And we want to be very clear, and I know you do too, that we're not talking about people who are criticizing the Israeli government or who are standing up for the rights of Palestinians. We're talking about people who are calling for violence and for harm, who are practicing hate speech, who are coming out and saying that they support what Hamas did. Um, that, that That's what we're talking about, not saying you don't like Israeli government policy. And I think that sometimes those things get conflated. But, but one of the issues that is being brought up to me uh, by minority communities, in particular right now the Jewish community, and I think of uh, your former colleague, Michael Levitt, um, he was a liberal MP. He now says it is time to move beyond platitudes. It is time to move beyond, um, you know, disavowing this and, and condemning it, that more needs to be done. What can the federal government do to protect Jewish communities right now? Well, so, I mean, first of all, um, I, I think it's also important to note that, you know, when we talk about, I think what's happened, particularly in the rise of anti-Semitism, is also the the you know, the threatening violent acts that have happened over the last week, uh, in particular at Jewish institutions um, that, you know, again, thankfully, nobody was hurt. But um, but but those are very scary for people. And they're very real uh, when a Molotov cocktail is left outside of a synagogue or bullets are shot through um, schools. These are these are real things that, again, nobody was there. But I think there's a real concern that there might be more escalation. Um, in terms of what the federal government can do and is doing, um, last week, Minister LeBlanc, the Minister of Public Safety, announced an additional $5 million to the Security Infrastructure Program, which is uh, a federal program that's available to uh, faith groups of, of all denominations, um, including Jewish groups, but it's, it's available to everyone uh, to uh, provide security infrastructure. So whether that's security cameras or alarm systems um, at... Uh, uh, could be places of worships, could be community centers, could be faith-based schools, 
to be able to access to protect themselves. Um, we've appointed uh, two special envoys, uh, one special envoy on uh, combating anti-Semitism and the promotion of Holocaust remembrance, as well as a special envoy on Islamophobia, um, and continuing to encourage dialogue. Um, I think that's really important. I think uh, lowering the temperature um, and not um, trying to escalate the tensions, um, making sure that we as the government, but also as leaders across this country are, are really trying to, um, again, remind Canadians of, of who we are, um, and that this is a diverse, this is a tolerant, this is an inclusive country. I think the prime minister has said it best, you know, if, if we can't demonstrate that peaceful um, coexistence here in Canada, what country can? And and I know we can because we have for a long time. And you know we are we are you know steadfast in combating racism and combating hate in all of its forms. And then of course um, you know other levels of government and police forces I think need to take these threats very seriously to make sure that we don't see an escalation where someone. Um, you know, uh, God forbid, gets hurt or or even killed uh, here in Canada. And I think, uh, particularly, what we saw um, awfully in the last week in Montreal has put that at the forefront that we need to take these threats very seriously to the Jewish community, but to communities right across the country. Minister Gould, thank you for joining us today with both your thoughts as a cabinet minister and I know what is a much more personal and difficult side of this story for you. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mercedes. For many veterans, the battle doesn't end once they hang up their uniforms and come home from the battlefield. PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, lost limbs and shrapnel wounds are just some of the health issues that can follow troops off of the battlefield and back to Canada. And now exposure to toxic burn pits is emerging as a concern. Burn pits were commonly used to get rid of waste, including toxic chemicals on military bases in Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S. has already passed a law extending benefits to veterans who were exposed to these pits. President Joe Biden even shared his personal connection to the issue. His son, Beau, a veteran, died of brain cancer in 2015. Toxic smoke, thick with poison spreading through the air and into the lungs of our troops. When they came home, many of the fittest and best warriors that we sent to war were not the same. Headaches, numbness, dizziness, cancer. My son Bo was one of them. Well, Washington's law is now more than a year old, Canadian soldiers who were exposed to the same burn pits in Afghanistan are still waiting. Joining me now to talk about this is retired Master Corporal Arjun Graywall, who did six tours in Afghanistan. He's now the CEO of Ventus Respiratory Technologies, a company that creates masks to protect law enforcement and military from toxic exposure. Arj, great to see you here on set. I've known you for a long time. You're a phenomenal veteran, and uh, we're just thrilled to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. You have been the guy when it comes to burn pit, re burn pit research in Canada. I, I spoke to a number of people. I made a bunch of phone calls when I started first looking into this, and everybody said, you have to talk to Arjun. He knows the details. Can you start with explaining to us 
What is a burn pit and why is it so dangerous? Uh, I'm humbled by that, so thank you. Um, and I'm happy to share this with, with Canadians um, because it's an important issue that doesn't get a lot of attention here. Um, what is a burn pit? It's a, it's a large uh, bonfire, if you will, that is in the middle of a military base or a forward operating base. Um, and it's used to get rid of, um, incinerate everything. Uh, and I mean everything. Uh, helicopter carcasses, batteries, human waste, uh, ammunition, um, food waste, and what it does and why it's so dangerous and why burn pits are such a specific cause of toxic exposure um, is because it smolders. It, it doesn't incinerate at a high rate. It's not plasma fired and it doesn't get rid of anything very fast. Um, and with the populations that exist on military bases, they're often living around where those um, burn pits are placed. Um, and, and one thing that's important to note is that a burn pit is a bit of a necessary evil. Um, in these areas where we are unsupported and we are austere locations, um, proper waste facilities are not available um, and can be a security risk. So uh, burn pits are utilized often uh, and, and a lot more so than just in a couple of these large forward operating bases. I, I remember the burn pits in Afghanistan. They were, they were very common um, and they were part of life because, as you say, there was, there was nowhere else to get rid of this refuse. When you talk about things like helicopter carcasses and batteries going in, what sort of toxins are given off by these burn pits and, and then are being inhaled by the troops who are living and fighting around them? Uh, everything from particulates uh, that include heavy metals. Um, there are uh, volatile organic compounds that come from carbon-based uh, incineration. And again, at that low heat, that smoldering, it just makes it more available and more available to be inhaled. Um, you, you've smelt the smell of plastic or burnt hair. It, it's it's all, all within there um, are volatile compounds and uh, cytotoxins that cause everything from respiratory illnesses, irritations, neurotoxicity, and the, the list goes on. This is, you know, something that struck me because I know a lot of firefighters and, and it's well known that cancer is high risk for them in Canada. But we haven't heard the government or Veterans Affairs talking about burn pits where people are inhaling the smoke without any kind of a mask like a firefighter would have as a possible consequence. And this really came onto my radar because I just anecdotally know three relatively young, very healthy veterans, people who were doing things like triathlons and marathons, who got cancers out of nowhere and died very quickly. That is anecdotal, but their families raise concerns to me about the possibility of burn pits. Can you tell us what the science says, because while there's no studies in Canada, I know there are in the U.S., about what kind of health conditions burn pits can lead veterans to develop? And of course, that's a very sad story, and I think any any veteran uh, that you speak to probably has a very similar story of friends or colleagues who are uh, being diagnosed with early cancers, uh, complex respiratory diseases that aren't seen in an age group or uh, a population like the military. I mean, we are some of the healthiest, fittest, most tracked um, population in Canada, um, and we're still seeing uh, a high rate of illness. Um, so in terms of what types of illnesses that we see, uh, cancers are obviously one that um, are, 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 are very scary, um, but there's COPD, asthma, infertility, um, and from these chemicals uh, metabolizing into bloodstream into major organs, uh, into the brain. Um, we're, we're seeing really complex cases earlier, earlier in age. Um, and as we talk about veterans, uh, some of these afflictions are coming to currently serving soldiers too, um, not just people who've retired. Uh, or so the burn pit issue didn't end with Afghanistan? Absolutely not. Toxic exposure is still happening to our troops who are serving now? Everybody needs to breathe and breathe clean air uh, as, as often as we can. 
um, and where toxic exposure takes its place outside of the burn pit um, is everywhere from high volume training um, or even low so volume So you mean training. like firing a lot of rounds out of a firearm, somebody who is at target practice, for example? Exactly. Um, you know, weapons training of any caliber, any type of uh, weapon from small arms, rifles and pistols to uh, tankers and lav gunners and artillery men and women. Um, these are all areas where they're getting exposed to the exhaust that comes from a weapon, the handling that comes from weapons, which are made up of lead, copper, antimony, and a host of other heavy metals. Um, and then the other, of course, is breaching. Um, so whether it's mine breaching operations and training for those. That, that's for, for people at home that's blowing something open, right? Exactly. And yeah. when you see in the movies and they blow a door and to enter, that's a breach. Yeah, gaining entry into an area using mechanical means by cutting or sawing or using incendiary means like explosives. How many Canadians do you believe have been exposed to this ballpark? Uh, well, the statistics show that um, about 40,000 Canadian citizens uh, have uh, deployed to Afghanistan during our time there from 2001 to 2014. Um, in the U.S., where these studies are a lot more rigorous uh, and reported, um, they have stats where, where they're, they're almost 100x, so 4.2 million uh, soldiers in the U.S. deployed during the global war on terror into Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq. Um, and they've shown that there is a four times higher rate of cancers, illnesses, and COPD and other respiratory illnesses among that population wow. when compared to the general population. Um, so it's, I think it's a clear correlation that similar statistics would be shown here in Canada if those studies were taken and completed. What has the United States done to deal with this? I know they've passed legislation. Can you walk us through what American veterans now have access to or benefits from as a result of the changes in the law down there? Uh, in, in the U.S., there's been great leadership around this space, um, as well as in the mental health and TBI space, uh, where, where we're finally catching up. Um, but organizations and advocacy groups like Burn Pit 360 um, have, have been really vocal leaders in this space to get veteran health care. Um, and, and this is obviously care that is after the fact. So when, when soldiers are diagnosed and they need care or pass away from an illness, um, they call it presumptive exposure, presumptive illness, because of service and what they've been able to pass uh, is a stark and massive funding budget uh, to take care of these respiratory illnesses. Uh, $280 billion uh, was signed into act by President Biden, uh, like you said, a year ago. Um, and what that's afforded the veteran community and soldiering community, the ones that are still serving, um, is knowledge that they'll be taken care of when they get exposed, if they get sick and if they pass away. Right, so it's the same as if you have PTSD here or you lose your hearing, you get compensation from Veterans Affairs and if you pass away that the family receives money because it's a recognition that it was service related. Do you have any sense that the Canadian government or Veterans Affairs Canada is looking into something similar? I honestly have very little sense in it because I've done the research and we've reached out to a number of leaders within uh, VAC uh, and the CAF to, to try and understand the uh, the problem and what's being done about it. Um, my, 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 myself and my colleagues are, are recent veterans. We, we retired only three to four years ago. Um, so we know exactly what it was then. Um, and to see that not much has changed uh, is, is quite apparent. 
it's obviously very concerning and concerning to hear that it's still happening. I know you were a member of a unit uh, that's highly operational, that still those uh, operators get blood tests done regularly to look for lead in their blood. Um, but lead is only one heavy metal, and you're saying they're exposed to a lot. Do you think that the Canadian Armed Forces is conducting sufficient toxic exposure testing as they're going along? Because one of the challenges for veterans, of course, is always to prove that something that's happened is service-related. And if there's no baseline, it's very hard to prove that, something people experienced a lot with TBIs. Do you think that toxic exposure is going to be similar? Um, I think I'm, I'm confident in, in that unit being rigorous in their ability to protect and take care of those those operators. Um, I think the greater CAF is not there yet and, and needs to be. Um, to answer your other question about, you know, are they are they taking steps to to mitigate or protect? Um, you know, lead is a canary in the coal mine. Uh, we are exposed to 30 to 40 different heavy metals in any training environment, uh, training evolution, and. Lead is one of those um, hot topic issues that everybody gets, right? Mm -hmm. Lead's been removed from gasoline, from paint, from toys. Um, so that's now the one we're looking at removing from weapons training. Um, but as I said, there's a number of carcinogenic heavy metals that happen and occur in that kind of training beyond just lead. Arjun, thank you for your service and your sacrifices. We appreciate it and for joining us today with this important topic. Thank you for having me and shining light on this issue. Now for one last thing. Canadians gathered at ceremonies across this country yesterday to honour those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. This year's Remembrance Day marked the 75th anniversary of the United Nations' first peacekeeping mission, something that plays in all of our minds as the world appears more volatile and divisive, with Russia's war in Ukraine and the conflict in the Middle East. Our peace and freedom are never something that we can take for granted. We here on the West Block would like to thank all of our veterans and those who are currently serving. I'll see you next Sunday.